Second Peter chapter 1, I'm going to start at verse 5 this time, and I'm going to read from the NIV. I've been reading from the New King James, the King James, uh, but I'm going to start at verse 5, and this is from the NIV. It says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to your goodness, knowledge, and to your knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness the godliness mutual affection or what we talked about last week is brotherly kindness and to mutual affection love for if you possess these qualities if if you possess these qualities in increasing measure they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in other words you won't be unfruitful in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ but whoever does not have them is nearsighted blind forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins therefore my brothers and sisters make every effort to confirm your calling and election make your calling an election sure for if you do these things you will never stumble some versions say you'll never fall another version says you'll never fail never stumble never fall and never fail I don't know about you but that sounds like something that I'd like to do I'd like to never fall maybe you're a person who has never fallen so you don't know what it's like to fall Maybe you haven't been walking and, and stumbled along, so you don't know what that's like to stumble. But I know for me, I know what it's like to stumble, I know what it's like to fall, and I know what it's like to fail gloriously in all three of those. And so if you have been through that, you would look at this and say, wow, uh, Peter's saying here, I, I will never stumble, I'll never fall, I'll never fail. What must I do to do that? And he's saying, I'm glad you asked. Here are some things that you can do. How many know that God is a spirit? <clears throat> John tells us that God is a spirit. God is spirit, but he gives us these very practical things. We also know that it is God's will for us to grow up spiritually. As he says in Ephesians chapter 4, we, he wants us to grow up. Why? You see, because it is the Christians with completely renewed minds the weas, the, the ones who, have, who, who go on unto perfection and strive for that in Christ who will then manifest the kingdom of God, not only in their life, but to the world, which is your job. <laughs> Peter gives us this path. He gives us these seven qualities that we need to add to the quality you already have when you accept the Lord as your Savior, which is faith. You have faith. And in order to grow, you need to add these things. Grace with faith will get you into heaven. But how many know it's not God's will just that you go to heaven? You must understand, and we talked about this on Wednesday night when we talked about Jesus talking to Nicodemus, saying that the Son of Man who uh, came from heaven and is in heaven, we talked about him being omnipotent. Heaven is here with you right now. And so the question is, what are you waiting for? I know that when we all get to heaven, what a glorious day that will be. I know that one day I'll fly away. I know that one day, though uh, maybe it seems like I'm coming up on the rough side of the mountain now, one day I'm going to be with the Lord. But Jesus is here for you now saying that your day is today. 
He's saying, I'm here now. John said, look, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not some future thing. It's here now, not for some time to come. We live in a grace dispensation, and dispensation talks more about, uh, less about a mode of time than it does about an operation, what God is doing. God is doing something right now, not with the world, not with the church, in you, in your life. And God is confronting you this morning as we complete this series on eight keys to victorious living. He's confronting you to say, look, look in the mirror because I'm here now. The kingdom of God is inside of you. It's time now to add to your faith these things that I've laid out for you. Add to your faith virtue. Have a standard. Have some morals in your life. Have a standard. Don't just fall for anything. It's time for you to add to your life some self-control. Your worst enemy is not out there. Your worst enemy is right here. Add to your self-control some knowledge. You need to know some things. Don't walk around in life letting life tell you what to do, letting others tell you what to do, letting the enemy dictate your life, letting circumstances and the way you were brought up and the neighborhood you came in and the family you came from don't let those things dictate your life have some self-control read your word get your word in you pray come on have some self-control and then he's saying add to all of those things brotherly kindness add to those things perseverance you got to be able to make it through some things and when you've done all of that add love add love to it do it all we must remember saints that this is an individual endeavor. It is something that we personally must pursue. I can't pursue maturity for you. I can teach, you can teach me, but you can't pursue maturity for me. It is up to me. It's not a one-time event when you come to the altar and give your life to the Lord. That's getting into heaven. That's, that's being saved. That's being changed. But now being matured is not a one-time event. It's a continual lifestyle that we must develop. For if we develop this lifestyle and continue to develop it, then we will never stumble. Never stumble. God wants you to have victory. Let me just remind you that victory is an act of defeating an enemy. That's what victory is. It's an act of defeating an enemy or an opponent in a battle, a game, or some other competition. That's what victory is. And God wants us to have that victory. Come on, you are victorious. You're not going to be victorious, but you are victorious. God wants us to add love to all of these things because without love, we know, Corinthians 13, he said it's, we're like a clanging cymbal, just a person making noise. You just, you're just talking. <laughs> you, we used to call it bumping your gums. You're just talking. Now, I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> you're just talking. You ever, I see it in sports a lot. People just, you know, they get on the court or they get on the field and they, have it, they catch a pass for two yards. And if you're not uh, that much into football, that's not very much. I mean, you didn't really do much. You caught a pass and you went two yards and then they get up and they talk mess and see what I did and they first down and I did all this kind of stuff. And watching it, you go, you ain't did nothing. You haven't done anything. You got two yards and the other team's winning 28 to seven. Why are you doing this? You know, and so without love, that's what we sound like. That's where we are. We're just talking and God's saying, you haven't done anything. 
The devil's looking at you saying, you ain't done nothing. Just talking. And so we don't want to be that way. We want to add love. Now, I know love is a cliche. It's a cliche-ish word. It's a word that we use all the time. Let me start by giving you a little story. I found a story to me that expresses love, the kind of love that God wants us to have. All right, because we, 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 we talk about love your neighbor, and we're going to talk about it in just a moment, love your neighbor, uh, you know, but you know what we do most of the time is we love other Christians, or we love people who are like us, even uh, in the church. Sometimes we don't love every Christian in the church, we just love people who are like us, right? And, and look like us or talk like us or have the same doctrine that we do or, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, we, we love those people, but that's not the kind of love that he's talking about. It was one of the most extraordinary birthday parties, this story goes, that was ever held. It was not in a plush ballroom or a grand hotel. There weren't famous celebrities or anyone who was rich and powerful at this birthday party and in fact it was held at 3 a.m. didn't even start till 3 a.m. it was in a small seedy cafe in Honolulu Hawaii and the guest of honor was a prostitute the fellow guests were prostitutes and the man who threw it was a Christian minister the idea came to this minister Tony Campolo very early one morning as he sat in the cafe he was drinking coffee at the counter when a group of prostitutes walked in and they took up stools all around him he's drinking coffee there at the counter and one of the girls Agnes she was lamenting to herself the fact that not only was it her birthday tomorrow but that she'd never had a birthday party Never, as long as she can remember, not even, and you might say that's hard to believe when kids are little, they have birthday parties. Well, she never had one, never had a birthday party. So Tony thought it would be a great idea to surprise Agnes with a birthday party. Learning from the cafe owner, a guy named Harry, the girls came in every morning around 3.30 a.m. Tony agreed uh, with him to set up the place for a party. Word somehow got out on the street so that by 3.15 the next morning, the place was packed with prostitutes. The cafe owner and his wife and Tony. When Agnes walked in, she saw streamers and balloons. And Harry, who was the owner, was holding a birthday cake. And everyone screaming, happy birthday. Agnes was overwhelmed. Remember, she never had a birthday party. The tears poured down her face as the crowd sang, happy birthday. When Harry called on her to cut the cake, she started to cut the cake, but she paused. She paused because she'd never had a birthday cake. And she wondered if she could take the cake home so that her mother could see it. So she never did cut the cake. She took it home. When Agnes left, there was stunned silence. Agnes is gone, now what? Well, Tony did what any minister, Christian minister, probably should do. He led Harry, his wife, and a room full of prostitutes in a prayer for Agnes. It was a birthday party that was rarely seen in Honolulu, thrown by a Christian minister 
for a 39-year-old prostitute who never had anyone go out of their way to do something like this and who expected nothing in return. Come on. Indeed, so surprising was this turn of events that the cafe owner, I know you think you know where I'm going with this. Maybe Agnes uh, came back to Tony and she got saved. We don't know if that happened or not, actually. But it was, it was so surprising, this turn of events, that the cafe owner found it hard to believe that there were churches and ministers and people, actually Christians, that would do this sort of a thing. But he said, if there's, then if there's that sort of people and those sort of churches, that's a church I'll join. Harry and his wife went to church the next week, gave their life to the Lord. And now they minister to prostitutes in Honolulu, Hawaii. True story. And so you can see how love can change things. Even when we don't think that it should in this situation. I'm not sure what your definition of love is. Or what your idea of expressed love is. Maybe you think about uh, I'm expressing love uh, for my wife. Or I buy a gift for someone at church. But what about somebody who doesn't deserve it, like you, who didn't deserve it when Jesus died on the cross? I'm not sure that there's a better representation or expression of the love of God than this story that was done for a prostitute who never had a birthday party. And she didn't ask for it. She wasn't asking for God, didn't ask for forgiveness before this happened, wouldn't ask to be saved. But someone reached out across all of those things and pulled her in. Don't you realize that's what God did for you? Before you responded to an altar call, before you laid in your bed and said, Lord, I need you, before you went through a situation that brought tears to your eyes and you reached out for God, he was already reaching out for you. That's love. This is what we're talking about. People who don't deserve it. And until we get that, we won't get it. This eighth key, love. Now, this word here <clears throat> is a word you've heard before in the Greek, agapeo. You know what it is, agape. And you know the common definition for agape is unconditional love. I would go into a big, long orator to tell you that that's not exactly 100% correct. But uh, for the sake of time this morning, let me give you a literal translation uh, of agape, a literal definition of the Greek word. Not a literal definition of love, but a literal definition of agapeo. It says a strong affection, a regard for a person, and their good as understood by God's moral character. In other words, that's the metron, that's the measuring stick, it's God's moral character. But listen to this part of the definition. Listen now, please. Especially characterized by a willing forfeiture of rights or privileges in another person's behalf. In other words, agape speaks to you giving up your rights, maybe the right to be right. Maybe you're in a situation where you're right and you know you're right. But to win somebody to Christ and to show them the love of God, you give that right up, whatever that means. Now, I don't know if you've been here for any amount of time. Uh, you, if you have, you would know that my definition of love is simply this, uh, the giving of oneself at the expense of oneself for the benefit of another. 
the giving of oneself at the expense of oneself for the benefit of another. I want you to think about that for a moment. I'm going to say it one more time and let it sink in. Don't let it just be a cliche-ish definition that Pastor Mike is giving you. Think about it. The giving of oneself, we, we do that sometimes. At the expense of oneself, well, that's a little bit more now. But now, for the benefit of another. In other words, you don't get anything back. You're not expecting anything back, nor would you receive anything back. It's the giving of yourself at the expense of yourself to benefit someone else. Your whole reason for doing this is to not so someone could see what you do, not so you could be self-centered, not so that you invest in order to receive back one day, though you will, but the purpose is to give to somebody else, to give to somebody else. I mean, the dictionary describes love as this intense feeling of deep affection or strong affection for another one. I want to tell you something, that there are times in your life where when you are going to show true love, it's not going to have anything to do with deep affection or strong feeling, but you can still show love. It's not going to have anything to do with the way you feel for that person because if you were honest with yourself, the way you feel for them, you'd like to choke them or you'd like to kick them or you'd like to do something else. Come on. <laughs> like to whack them, smack them upside the head, right? But despite that, I'm sure that's the way God was with you when you were running from him. Come on, listen. God put Adam and Eve in a garden where all they had to do was maintain. It wasn't even work. It was just maintain what I already gave you. Uh, you know, I've already got, uh, you know, vegetables coming up, fruit coming up. All you got to do is just maintain it. And they messed that up. And when they messed that up, they ran from God on top of that. And he chased them down. He chased you down when you didn't deserve it, when you were running from him. You were going the opposite direction. And God chased you down. That's the kind of love that we're talking about here. That's this kind of love. This word agape uh, is, is translated 116 in the New Testament in over 106 verses. I think Christ is trying to tell us something with this love. So I want you, even this morning, to sort of let, let um, your your definition of agape, unconditional love, let that be a baseline. Don't let that be your full definition of agape, okay? Don't let just, oh, it's, it's just unconditional love. You know, no matter what, I love you. What does that mean, that you say you love someone? That's saying that you love someone. It's not showing love, not expressed love. It goes beyond that. Let me just read you a story. In fact, go to Luke chapter 10, if you would. Let me just read you a story. One of the stories in the New Testament that I believe is a, a great example of the love that Jesus wants us to express. He wants us to develop and he wants us to express. You know it. You've read it before. And in this story, the word love I don't think is even mentioned. Not even mentioned in the story. But God wants us to have this very kind of love. I know you've read it before, you've heard it before, but indulge me and read along with me. It says, and behold, a certain lawyer in verse 25, chapter 10, certain lawyer stood up, testified, saying, teacher, 
What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, being Jesus, said, Well, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. So Jesus gave it to him right there. Do this, and you will live. And he's, and, but he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Why do you think he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Instead of just taking Jesus at his word. We do this so often. And I, it's with doctrine. I don't want to get off <clears throat> on a rabbit trail this morning. But we do it so often. We argue about doctrine and whether speaking in tongues or getting baptized or whatever it might be. We try to find ways not to do it. You know, well, he didn't. What if you're on your deathbed? I don't have a chance to get baptized. Or what if you do this? What, well, what if, what if, what if, what if? What if you just follow what Jesus said to do? What if that? What if, what if that? He knows all those situations and circumstances. He already knows all that. You don't have to bring up what ifs to God. He knows all the what ifs. Don't look for what ifs. Look for what can I do? What can I do? So who is my neighbor, Jesus? Jesus answered him in verse 30 and said, okay, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, that's one thing we kind of miss in the story, he stayed with him all night. He didn't just drop him off. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, which is about two days' wages. He gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these, Jesus speaking to the lawyer now, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to him who fell among thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said, go and do likewise. What question is Jesus answering here to this man? What question is he answering? He's not answering a question of whether you should do good deeds or not. That's what we often ask, though, isn't it? Lord, should I do this for this person or should I not? Lead me and guide me. What, what should I do? Jesus here wasn't answering the question of what should you do for the person. It's not what he was answering. The guy asked, who is my neighbor? It's a little more poignant question. Now, you think about this story, remembering back Nebuchadnezzar back in probably around 586 B.C., conquered some areas including 
Samaria. And uh, at that time, what he did was he sent some of his people into Samaria and, uh, you know, in Judea and all of that. And um, there were foreigners that were living there. And so about 50 years later, when the Jewish people came back, they started accusing the Samarians of intermarrying and uh, intermingling, if you will, with the foreigners. And Samarians were saying, no, we didn't do that. And they said, yes, we did. And this sort of Hatfield and McCoy thing broke out. And so now the Jews don't like the Samaritans and the Samaritans don't like the Jews. <clears throat> and it's not just like they don't like the Jews. I mean, it's like IU and Purdue, they don't like each other. It's like Ohio State and Michigan. It's like everybody in the whole world and Tom Brady. It's like you, they don't like each other, except for the people in Boston. But uh, they don't like each other. I'm sorry. Forgive me, Lord. Tom Brady, bless him, Jesus. Get him saved, Lord. Get him saved. But they don't like each other that much. And so you have to take that into account when Jesus is telling this story that this is an infidel. You're telling some story about, in fact, if you look in the story, remember Jesus said, uh, okay, you know, he's answering the question, who is the name? He said, which of these three do you think is justified? Which, which of these three? He didn't say the Samaritan. He said, oh, well, I guess the one that showed him mercy. Couldn't even make his mouth say Samaritan. So much they didn't like each other. But the one that showed mercy, and Jesus said, go and do likewise. There's just two points I want you to get from the love that God wants us to show, especially based on this story here. The first one, you might want to write this down if you're able to, is show mercy. Show mercy. We see in this story that not only did the Samaritan help the man, but he picked him up, took care of his wounds, put him on his animal, took him to an inn, spent the night with him to make sure he would make it through the night, gave the innkeeper two denarii, and then uh, to, he told him to take care of him. And not only that, he said, well, I'm going to come back through. When I come back through, I'm going to check on him. And if you need more, if you did any more, I'll give you more then. Take care of him. That's mercy. Jesus asked, who was the neighbor to the man? Now, the expert in the law just said, I guess the one that showed mercy. Mercy literally means to show compassion or forgiveness towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Mercy is just not, I'm going to, show, I'm going to forgive you, uh, you know, and you don't deserve it. That is part of mercy. But mercy is also, uh, if you have the ability to hurt someone, you have the ability to throw them in jail, you have the ability to, to pass judgment on them, and you don't, and it's not just that you don't show, uh, you don't uh, pass judgment on them or hurt them, but it's that you then show compassion. You replace your judgment with compassion. I don't know if you're understanding that really to the full this morning. Maybe we will at some point get a revelation of what real mercy is. Because mercy isn't just saying, well, you, did, you stole that thing from me uh, or you talked about me. Guess what? I forgive you. That's part of it. Mercy's going the extra mile and showing compassion. Can I take you out for coffee? Let's talk about it. How can I help you? We don't want to help somebody who did us wrong. We'll forgive them. Because that's what God told us to do. But Jesus is saying, show compassion. That's what he means when he says, go the extra mile. Now listen, let me just remind you, we're talking about victorious living, by the way. If we want to go back to the beginning. 
We're not talking about how do you become a good person, four ways to be a good person. We're talking about eight keys to victorious living, to walking on water in the storm. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about being healed from cancer. We're talking about when you owe $9 million, somehow $10 million comes to you to pay it, and there's extra for you to bless other people. We're talking about walking victoriously. Now, if you want to walk victoriously, you need to show love. And if you're going to show love, you have to show mercy, not just have it. We pray, Lord, have mercy. God says, I'll do you one better. I'm going to show mercy. I'm showing it to you. Can we do that? And then the second one is simple. He says, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those you despise. Luke 6, 27, do good to those who hate you. Not do good to those you hate. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those that curse you. You so-and-so, and, -so and I'll, I, never, I don't want you to ever talk to me again. You can go to hell. Okay, bless you. I bless you. I pray for you. Pray for your prosperity just like I did for Tom Brady. And pray for those. <laughs> pray for those who spitefully use you. Somebody done you wrong, they stole some stuff, they talked about you, you got fired from your job because somebody else got you fired from your job. Oh, we're talking about going the extra mile now this morning. Come on. It says pray for them. Pray for them. And don't pray for them to go to hell. That's not what he's talking about. Bless them. Pray for them. The question here from the expert in the law is, who is my neighbor? Jesus answered this question with this parable. So the question now is, who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Jesus answered it very clearly. Everyone is your neighbor. Even those you hate, even those you despise, they are still your neighbor. Now, when you look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, you can rightly look at this story and say, well, you know, when he's talking about neighbor, he's saying the Samaritan's going by and he sees the man and so the man is his neighbor and that's why he helps him. But I want you to consider this. I don't believe the neighbor in this story is the man who's hurt. I believe the neighbor is the Good Samaritan because they, they, he's talking to a Jew, and Jews hate Samaritans. And he's talking about, you saw the Samaritan do something good. Now what are you going to do? This is somebody you hate. I believe the Samaritan is the neighbor. Everybody is your neighbor. You must love that person just as much as you love the people who are like you. You must love that person just as much as you love uh, those who share your same political views. You must love that person just as much as you love those who like the same kind of food that you do. Come on, you must love that person just as much as you love the people who are the same color as you. You must love everyone because everyone is your neighbor. I don't know if we think about that. I mean, who did Jesus die for? Who did he die for? I don't know if you know this or not, 
I'm going to go ahead. I, I don't know if you know this or not, but Jesus really had a terrorist as one of his 12. What if the Samaritan in this story Jesus was telling was a member of Al-Qaeda? Oh, it makes it a little different now, doesn't it? Now what? Now what? What am I supposed to do, Jesus? That person deserves to burn in hell. That person deserves, uh, that person doesn't deserve to be killed or go to jail. They deserve to be tortured for what they did. All may be true. And because it's true, Jesus is telling you to pray for them and love them. I'm going to tell you something now. You're not going to like it. I know you don't like it. It's all right. He says, show compassion. Oh. Jesus had a terrorist as one of his 12, Simon the Zealot. Simon, that you know zealots back in those days were ones who wanted to take Rome. They were rebels. They wanted to take it by force. Where do you think the sword came from? Come on. They, they carried weapons, and they were ready to rebel in the name of religion. Oh, I know it's quiet. I'm, I'm saying something this morning. I'm just talking about being like Jesus. I'm not talking about I'm on the side of a terrorist or anything, or they don't, you know, they shouldn't get what they deserve. I'm just telling you what Jesus is telling you and I this morning. I'm talking about if you want to live victorious, if you want to change, do you want to change the world? Or do you want all the people who are not like you and all the bad people to just go away and leave the world to us who are good? What do you want to do? Or do you want to change? See, Jesus came to a world. He didn't come. He is very clear. You know it. You've read it. Some of you have taught it. You've preached it. You've had devotions about it. When Jesus says, listen, I didn't come for the, those who are well. Those who are well don't need a doctor, but those who are sick, do you want to change the world or do you just want everybody else to go away and all of those who are like me, all of us, all of us who go to Christian church, you know, all of us who go to charismatic uh, Christian church, we can all stay because we love the Lord and we speak in tongues and we, uh, you know, we know how love is because we know the songs to sing and we know our own vernacular. So everybody else, you know, just be judged. Or do you want to change the world? Jesus has called us this morning to change the world. The worst of the worst. The worst kind of terrorist. The worst murderer. The worst child molester. The wor whatever you can think of. The worst of them. He gave you the power to change them. And whether you like it or not, whether I like it or not, in fact, look, can I just be honest? What, you know, Deidre and I were talking, she was telling me about this. As Christians, some of us just need to learn how to be honest sometimes, even though it's, you know, our feelings aren't right. We still need to be honest. Can I just be honest? I don't want to do that. I mean, a, a, a child molester, a terror, all of those type of things, when I, think, I don't want to show compassion. I don't, I don't want to do that. And if you were honest, I can't tell you what your heart is. I can't tell you what your flesh is. But I guarantee you, if many of you were honest, you don't want to do that either. You want to see justice done. You want to see them get what they deserve. I don't want to show compassion. I don't want to pray for them that they would change. But God loves them as much as he loves you. You don't like it, and I don't like it, but he does. Talk to Jonah. Jonah knew all about it. You, what do you think the Ninevites? The Ninevites were that way. The Ninevites were horrible people. I read somewhere where they took one of Israel's kings. I don't know who. I got to go back and read it again. But they put a hook in his mouth and drug him when they captured 
some people. That's not very nice. Why do you think Jonah said, no, I ain't, I'm not going there. I'm not going over there and preaching to them because I know what you're going to do. What if he asked you to go to the Middle East and preach Jesus? Not go to a church in the Middle East where people are Christians and you can go in and let's sing, you know, uh, I know who I am and, you know, whatever it might be. No, go and preach on the street with people who have guns and they spit at you and they hate you and they call you infidel. But he says, go there and tell them about Jesus. Now what? Now what? This, you, this is the kind of love we're talking about. Told you this is next level love. <laughs> this is the kind of love we're talking about. One last thing. Luke chapter 7. Just flip over there for me. This is it. I'm, I'm wrapping this up. I know this is kind of heavy. But it's really something you already know. You just didn't want to hear it. That's all. If you like me, I already knew it. I just don't want to hear it. I want to hear about being blessed in the city and blessed in the field. Blessed when you come, blessed when you go. I want to hear about being the head and not the tail. I want to hear, that's what I want to hear. I told, I'm just being honest. Can we be honest this morning? And I will hear that because that is God. That is God. But this is also God. Luke chapter 7, look at verse number 37. Here, why love your neighbor? You never know. You never know. Look at this. And behold, a woman in the city, you know the story, who was a sinner. I believe she was even a prostitute, but it doesn't say that there. I won't add to the word. Who was a sinner when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the, head, with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. You remember this story, right? The alabaster box. Now I want you to put a little, put your finger right there. Save that. We're going to come right back to it real quick. We're just about done here. Flip over to John. You never know. You never know. Flip over to John chapter 11. The Gospel of John. Not first, second, or third John. Gospel of John chapter 11. You know this story too, but just look at the first couple verses here. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. Remember how much Jesus loved Lazarus, Mary, and Martha? Lazarus of, Beth Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now flip on back to Luke chapter 7. So this was, this was Mary whom he loved. He loved Lazarus. It's almost like when you read it, it's almost like you get the feeling that Lazarus and Mary and Martha were his best friends. He loved them. He loved Mary. She was the one that was the prostitute. She was the one that was the sinner. Verse 39 in chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees, <clears throat> I'm at the right spot. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. That's the way a lot of us are. Jesus, if you knew who this woman was and how despicable she is, 
how, how despicable her life is, the despicable things that she's done. If you knew that, you wouldn't let her wipe your feet with her hair. Jesus is saying, I know exactly who she is. And because of that, I'm allowing her to wipe my feet with her hair. Because of that, I am showing compassion. And so we navigate life with our opinion and our various stances on issues. That's what drives us, our stances on issues. We let that become who we are. How is my opinion, is what you must ask, reflecting loving my neighbor as I love myself? We have to make sure that our stand on issues reflect loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. Of course, we all have people we just don't care for, and I'm not telling you that it's an easy task. I'm not telling you that it's easy. But Jesus, who loves us unconditionally, who gave salvation for us while we were in sin, has commanded us to actively, actively love our neighbor. We've established who your neighbor is, especially those we despise. And who is our neighbor? Everyone without exception.